listener writes in, what do you think of Mike Tomlin? Love that question. Thank you, listener. Contact the show at Roto Underworld on Twitter or email us rotounderworld at gmail.com. That is the anti-buzzard message. That's just someone asking for my opinion. It's so rare that we get that. You Normally, there is a, a tinge of condescension embedded in the message, or it's just a straight-up troll. Rarely is it just, hello, hi, Matt Kelly, I like your show, and I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on Player X or Coach X. We get so few of those types of messages! I've never seen this person's Twitter handle before, so I think they just fell out of the sky. A non-buzzard, more like a hawk. Yeah. With a great question. And I think the reason why Mike Tomlin was a topic for discussion is that he went for it on fourth and short with five seconds to go. By handing it off, was announcing to the world that this play was going to decide the game one way or the other. They handed the ball to Le'Veon Bell, or snapped it directly to Le'Veon Bell, I should say. And he went off tackle to the left and scored a touchdown because that's what players like Le'Veon Bell are trained to do, and that's what they do do. That's their job. So Mike Tomlin enabled his player to go out and do his job and succeed and win a football game. That is the job of the head coach. Mike Tomlin personified the role of the head coach perfectly. He fulfilled his role as leader of the football team perfectly in that spot. And the reason why he is a topic of conversation, the reason why you have members of this audience asking questions about him is because in the previous show, I talked about how often NFL coaches make irrational decisions, that they play the game in a perpetual state of fear, so risk-averse that they put their team in precarious positions and they don't maximize their team's chances to win. They violate win probability time and time again, and they don't play the players that give their team on offense specifically, do not give the offense the best chance to score points. I lament this all the time. This is a constant frustration of mine. And that's why seeing Mike Tomlin in that position where the decision really comes down to him, he is going to get either blamed for the failure or he is going to get praised for having the courage instead of just opting out, instead of recusing himself from the outcome of the game and simply kicking the field goal and opting for the tie. He said, no, I'll take the criticism if it comes to me. If we fail here and the knucklehead sports analysts and the knucklehead fans that don't understand win probability, if they want to come and criticize me, that's fine. That's my job, is to shield my players from criticism. That's my job in that sport and in that spot. Shield my players from criticism. Build their morale by showing confidence in them. And give my team the best chance to win. He did all of those things. We talk about players checking all the boxes. Dominator rating. Check. 40 times. Check. Speed score. Check. Mike Tomlin as a coach checks all the boxes. God, I love that guy. I love him. Love him. That play call in that spot. And also, not doing some cowardly quarterback rollout that had almost no chance of succeeding just to say he tried and then kicking the field goal. No, 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 no. 
calling the play, the specific play that gave his team the best chance to score a touchdown, even if it meant time would expire if they didn't convert. That took courage. Very few coaches would have done that. Very few coaches would have gone for it in the first place. Even fewer would have called a run play. It was brilliant. And it was, but it was only brilliant. I say brilliant. I use a hyperbolic term like brilliant because it was only brilliant in this sports climate that we have, this second guess climate that we have. We lament this all the time. The fantasy gamer, the troll, the sports fan, the sports analyst, they're always armed with the second guess. That's, they always have that at their disposal. They can always play the result on you. So the deck is stacked against you. Typically, when you make a particular play call, that's simply the right play call and you did the right thing. Or, and the, and the, went, the players went out and they executed, and, and that's great. The player gets to hold up the trophy. The player gets to be interviewed after the game. However, ask Pete Carroll if the play doesn't work, then all of the questions, all of the focus is directed at the coach. So there's a disproportionate incentivization there in terms of public perception, in terms of blame versus accolades. And usually the coach who is in the leadership position, who is hired specifically to make the difficult in-game decisions, that's their number one job. Some of those decisions decide the outcome of games and the win-loss record at the end of the season decides whether or not that coach is going to keep his job or not. So that's a very important part of his job, making those decisions, those micro-decisions, in-game, in-game tactics, in-game decision-making, in-game courage. That's the coach's job. That's why they exist. You can just have a bunch of assistant coaches helping the different positions with their craft, you can have assistant coaches calling plays in headsets, but the head coach, he stands above them to make those hard decisions. That's his role. Yet so few coaches opt to make those hard decisions because again, it's stacked against them. We have constructed this second guess culture that will disproportionately skewer the coach that goes for it in that spot and the team doesn't convert. And the coaches that are supposed to embody courage shrink so often and kick the field goal in that specific situation. And what I marvel at is this. These coaches are violating. These coaches that, I say these coaches because it is. It's these coaches. Mike Tomlin is such a rarity. Mike Tomlin and Bill Belichick, these coaches that have the courage to call the unorthodox play in the unorthodox situation, knowing that if it doesn't work, they and they alone will be blamed for the failure. That is so rare in football. And I marvel at how rare it is because you would think, based on their job description and what they ask of their players every Sunday, you would think that it would be the reverse. That it would be the rare thing that the coach cowers from making the hard decision. You would think that the coach in those spots, more often than not, almost... Every time, outside of some special circumstances, that the, that the coach would make the hard decision, would show trust in his players, would build their morale, would take the, the blame for the outcome on his shoulders, if necessary, and shield his players from criticism. You would think, based on what we know is the role of the head coach, you would think, you would think, most coaches... It would be almost automatic 
that they would hand the ball to Le'Veon Bell in that spot, but it is not. It is so rare. These coaches almost always will kick field goal on fourth and one with time running out in that specific situation. Almost every Sunday, every game, every coach, you see them time and time again violating analytical principles, violating win probability, violating these analytical principles that very few sports fans appreciate. And I, I've come to accept that. But on fourth and one, on the goal line, that is a special circumstance. Because there, I believe, not only is the, the coach that kicks the field goal, I believe he is violating analytical principles. But that coach is also violating anecdotal principles. The anecdotals that the sports zombie masses hold close. When the coach kicks field goal in that spot to send the game into overtime, they are violating analytics and the anecdotal mythology that the sports media and sports fans build up around these coaches. That's what I marvel at. The conflict that exists in that decision to kick field goal, which you saw Mike McCarthy do time and time and time again in the playoffs when he had Aaron Rodgers. You should never kick an extra point when you have Aaron Rodgers as your quarterback. You should always go for two. You should never kick a field goal when you have eight yards or less to get a first down. You should always be giving the ball to Aaron Rodgers because more often than not, he will get you that conversion. That's how good he is. So the Mike McCarthy decisions in the playoffs to consistently on fourth and one kick field goal were even more egregious because he had the Aaron Rodgers weapon in the backfield. It would have been more understandable for Mike Tomlin to simply say, you know what, we have Michael Vick. And Michael Vick is borderline incompetent at this point in his career. So we're going to kick a field goal here. If I had Ben Roethlisberger, we would go for it. We have Michael Vick. We're not going to go for it. You could explain that to the media very straightforwardly, and no one would question it. No one. Well, I would, because it violates win probability, but that's something else. The zombie sports masses would not question it. Oh, you have Michael Vick. Play it safe. He's like, no, let's take Michael Vick off the field and let's just direct snap to Le'Veon Bell. (gasps) Smart! Innovative, courageous. Yes, yes, yes! Grabbing a play from the past decade. I love that. Loved that. I loved it. You should have seen my face when I saw that play call and I saw the outcome of the game. I was beaming. Understand? I was beaming. Like, there was a light that was shining inside me. I was inspired. So often, I am demoralized watching these games. Watching these coaches who ask players to play with broken bones and then act like cowards every time, they are the ones that have to decide the outcome of the game. Every time they have to be involved, they recuse themselves from the decision-making. Every time. And it's just wearying and dispiriting to keep seeing this over and over again. And then to see the script flip. And Mike Tomlin say, no, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not one of these generic head coaches. I'm going to make the decision that gives my team the best chance to win. Wow, wow. Because those coaches that kick field goal on fourth and one at the goal line, 
it's not just that they're violating win probability. They're violating those anecdotal principles that get talked about every day by these sports broadcasters and sports analysts that you see on the major sports media platforms. The coach is the keeper of the effort. The coach uplifts team morale. The coach inspires performances with his leadership, except when that decision might get him criticized. Except when winning and losing can be directly tied back to a decision the coach made. Then he cowers. So often, these coaches stand in front of the media. We talked about this with Tom Coughlin, passive-aggressively talking about his injured players and how he'd like to see those injured players on the field. What is he doing? He's implicitly encouraging players with strained and torn ligaments, with broken bones. He's asking those players to play through pain for him. And then when the team needs that coach's leadership, at that moment, at that seminal moment, the coach acts like a scared buffoon, like a coward. That's all you see every time you turn on the television or watch an NFL game. You just see coaching cowardice. We talked about this Yesterday, with Bill O'Brien, the cowardice involved in not playing Jalen Strong from the beginning, every snap. It's the same disease. It's the same cowardice disease that these coaches are infected with that Mike Tomlin has found the cure for. And we pivot, we segue, we have no pivot. This is a very, this, wow, what an awkward segue. Oh boy, yesterday I talked about how I wanted to be a sports radio ninja, going to our sponsor, oh, going to a Segway, oh, going to a new segment, oh, throw it over to an analyst, oh yeah, sports media ninja, (laughs) right, right, that was an awkward Segway, now let's talk about the box score, from that, from from my, my sermon, my coach sermon, all hail the Mike Tomlin. The painfully awkward segue into Chiefs Bears from last week. (laughs) Boy. Oh, boy. So, really, yesterday's show, we were consumed in the waiver wire priorities, right? And we talked about how I'm spending about 40% of my free agent auction budget on Sharkhandrick West and about 20% on Niall Davis. I think Niall Davis is a better player. I think Niall Davis gives the Kansas City Chiefs a better chance to win. I think Niall Davis, on a per-touch basis, can do more with the football. But again, Andy Reid, like most of these coaches, is irrational. He might be worried that Niall Davis is more fumble-prone, maybe. Maybe that's the perception. Maybe Niall Davis isn't as trustworthy as Sharkhandrick West. For some nonsense reason that probably won't affect the outcome of the game, Andy Reid is going to start Sharkhandrick West over Niall Davis. And we can't control that. We can't control the coaching buffoonery. Sharkhandrick West is the inferior running back to Niall Davis, and it doesn't matter because the running back is in a symbiotic relationship with the offensive line and the overall offense. Even a running back with below average quote-unquote talent like Devonta Freeman, can be the number one running back in fantasy if he's operating in a high-volume offense with a great offensive line. So my opinion about Sharkhandrick West's ability versus Niall Davis's ability is is essentially irrelevant. All that matters is Andy Reid's irrational, scared decision-making and his superstition. That's really all we can go on. And he's 
went in front of the media and he said, essentially, Sharkandrick West is going to be the guy. Niall Davis will be mixed in. It's going to be a committee, but it's going to be a 60-40 committee, a 70-30 committee with Sharkandrick West leading the way. And there's nothing we can do about it. So we can howl at the moon as savvy fantasy gamers who know Niall Davis is the far superior running back to Sharkandrick West. We can simply howl at the moon and we can do the irrational move of slotting Niall Davis ahead of Sharkandrick West in our waiver wire rankings. But that doesn't make sense. We have to read the coaching tea leaves. The coaching tea leaves are are forming the face of Sharkandrick West in tea leaves, not Niall Davis. So that's where we have to turn our attention to on the waiver wire this week. I'm really struggling after that Mike Tomlin rant. Woof! Having a hard time speaking, stumbling over my words. I just don't feel right. I feel a little after that 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 awkward transition. I've just I've so I I I don't have my footing. It's a very strange feeling. So I was looking at this Chiefs-Bears game, looking back through the games from, from Sunday, doing my analysis, and I noticed something about Jay Cutler. Jay Cutler is quietly having, I think, his best season ever. Because in the past, Jay Cutler has always had Brandon Marshall by his side. And then in Chicago, he had both Brandon Marshall and Alshon Jeffrey. But now, all he has left is Martellus Bennett, and Matt Forte. And yet, Jay Cutler put up 252 yards and two touchdowns, no turnovers, and only two sacks against Kansas City. Yes, they have one of the softest pass defenses, one of the easiest secondaries for quarterbacks to shred, but still, it's Jay Cutler. This is Jay Cutler we're talking about. This is Jay Cutler who commits more than 10 fumbles per year, and in some years, more than 20 interceptions. That's what we're talking about with Jay Cutler, but he's into his 30s now. He's in his early 30s, and now he's suddenly playing well. He's never had a passer rating at 90 or above, but he's playing well. It's interesting to see him play well because he's had seasons with more yards per game, more touchdowns per game. He's had a couple seasons with a better passer rating than he's accumulated thus far this season, but he's never done it with such little weaponry. It's amazing. The game of football, for some players, just takes longer to click. We talked about Ted Ginn, James Jones. Took them eight years. There is a chance. It's a small chance. We have an eight-year sample size of Jay Cutler looking like a bad quarterback. So it's improbable. But there is a chance. Again, we've seen it with Ted Ginn and we've seen it with James Jones. There is a chance that there is a very late-life inflection point being reached right now by Jay Cutler. I'm interested to see how he plays in the next few weeks because of this. But I'll tell you one thing. He's not playing well because of Marquez Wilson. I mean, I would love to get excited about Marquez Wilson. He's 6'4". He had a 32% dominator rating at Washington State, which was above the 50th percentile. 16.1 college yards per reception. A well above average agility score. Above average 40 time. Like He's relatively fast for a big guy relatively quick for a big guy, was productive at an early age, I and mean, he broke out at age 18. So he was a starter at Washington State at age 18. So there's some impressive things about Marquez Wilson, but I just don't see it happening. It's hard to imagine Marquez Wilson ascending at this point, because if he were the real deal, he would have established a more significant role before week five. He wouldn't have been challenged to usurp Eddie Royal. 
He still hasn't usurped Eddie Royal. As long as Eddie Royal is playing, Eddie Royal is commanding more targets than Marquez Wilson. And to me, that's an indictment of Marquez Wilson. He's still young. He's 23 years old. And there are some metrics on his profile that are exciting. But he was only a seventh round pick. And none of his workout metrics exceed the 72nd percentile. So it's a good but not great thing. A late round pick who was good not great in college and good not great at the combine. That's hard to get overly enthusiastic about when on the football field, it took an injury to Alshon Jeffrey and Eddie Royal and Kevin White for him to be fantasy relevant. So I'm just not excited about Marquez Wilson. He's not a waiver wire ad on my list this week. Who I'm targeting on the Bears is, has been, and will continue to be Alshon Jeffrey because you keep hearing people saying, I'm souring on Alshon Jeffrey. I've had enough. This is the last possible moment you would want to sour on Alshon Jeffrey. You see this time and time again. A player has a setback with an injury, and his owners sour on him. We ha- it happened with Odell Beckham last year. People drafted him, and then he had a setback with his hamstring. He missed week one, and they said, nah, I don't have time for this guy. I can't wait one more week for Odell Beckham Jr. Not going to happen. Get out of here. I'm sick of looking at him on my bench. You hear that so often. Just tired of him. Tired of the player the week before he comes back and will be the team's undisputed target hog. Alshon Jeffrey is guaranteed 10 or more targets per game based on what we're seeing in terms of volume being directed at players like Marcus Wilson, someone named Bellamy, Eddie Royal. I mean, Alshon Jeffrey is so much better than Marcus Wilson, Eddie Royal, someone named Bellamy. There are very few wide receiver cores in the league where the differential between the number one receiver and the other guys is so vast. And it is with Alshon Jeffrey. The second best receiver on the Bears is Matt Forte. The third best receiver is Martellus Bennett. They're not even receivers. So Alshon Jeffrey is head and shoulders the number one option for Jay Cutler. He will be the first read in every read progression. In every personnel package, every play call will be designed to get the ball to Alshon Jeffrey. Don't you understand that? The moment he is active for a game, Alshon Jeffrey is going to be epic. Jay Cutler is playing well for him. Brandon Marshall is gone. All those targets are going to be siphoned to Alshon Jeffrey. Alshon Jeffrey will have some 20 target games this year based on the projected target share that I'm seeing based on the players that are available to Jay Cutler in the passing game. I mean, who were these players? Someone named Bellamy and someone named Meredith. Now, of course, I know who Cameron Meredith is, and of course, I know who (laughs) Josh Bellamy is. I even know who Mark Mariani is. I mean, I know who these players are. Mark Mariani was a kick returner for the Titans. I mean, I know this. This is a joke. Okay, I'm making a joke when I say some guy named Bellamy. Of course, I know all the players. I'm the proprietor of playerprofiler.com. Of course, I know who everyone is. And of course, I have everyone's statistics and their advanced metrics and their intrinsic ability committed to memory. Of course. Who do you think you're talking to? You're not talking to anyone. You're listening. What am I talking about? I have no idea what I'm talking about. Ever since that awkward transition from that Mike Tomlin rant, I have gone completely off the rails. This has been the theme of the week. This is bad radio week for me. I completely melted down and short-circuited yesterday, and today I've just gone off the rails after a bad segue. 
It's just a slump. I'm in a slump. I'm in a radio slump right now. This is what this is what a radio slump looks like. But it's pretty amazing, though, when you look at Jay Cutler. I always think of Jay Cutler and Matthew Stafford as being similar players. But the perception difference between Matthew Stafford and Jay Cutler now is pretty amazing. Matthew Stafford, everything that's swirling around him is regarding him being benched, him being the reason for the losing in Detroit. Whereas Jay Cutler, him returning was like the return of the king because it was all relative, right? Jimmy Clausen to Jay Cutler is like going from Andy Dalton to Aaron Rodgers. I mean, it's just, it's an enormous difference. Not even really, because Andy Dalton's playing really well. So you can't even really say that anymore. You normally say that, right? Oh, pick game manager X and then compare him to Aaron Rodgers when you're trying to make a point. You can't even do that anymore with Aaron Rodgers because he's so good, but you also can't do it anymore with Andy Dalton either. You need to go something like Alex Smith and Tony Romo. I was going to say Tom Brady. You can't even do it with Tom Brady anymore because he's become so good. He's become so epically good. He's has better fantasy numbers this year than Aaron Rodgers does. I don't even know who you'd go to. I guess you'd go to Ben Roethlisberger, but he's hurt. Tony Romo's hurt. I guess Phillip Rivers would be the guy. So if you want to pick really good quarterback X as an example, if you're trying to prove a point, make a point, you say Phillip Rivers. And if you want to pick game manager X, I guess you'd go Alex Smith. So the difference between Jay Cutler and Jimmy Clausen is like Phillip Rivers and Andy... Wait, I just did it again. I, I'm so wired. I'm so pre-programmed to go to Andy Dalton in this example. It's crazy. It really is. It's not Andy Dalton. The difference, I'm going to say, I'm going to try it again. The difference between Jay Cutler and Jimmy Clausen is like the difference between Phillip Rivers and Alex Smith. Not going to say Andy Dalton. Look at that game last weekend. Bengals Seahawks. Awesome game. It's the reason why the Red Zone channel exists. I'm so far from Cincinnati. I'm so far from Seattle. 20 years ago, I would never have seen a second of that game live. And it was a fantastic finish. All hail the Tyler Eifert. Tyler Eifert is your new elite tight end. He's the next guy. He looks a lot like Jimmy Graham when you look at the measurables. And he's playing like Jimmy Graham. It's apropos that Tyler Eifert has taken over for Jimmy Graham as the number two tight end in fantasy. And I'm writing an article right now that's going to appear on both XN Sports and PlayerProfiler.com that talks about why you should be playing Tyler Eifert on DraftKings this week. So that's going to come up later today. I'll just give you, a, a for the podcast listeners, I'll give, I'll, I'll give you a sneak preview. I'll, spoiler alert, if you like to read the article first. Spoiler alert, spoiler alert. You should be playing Sam Bradford. You should be playing Kamar Aiken. You should be playing Tyler Eifert. Across the board, cash and tournament. In tournament games, specifically in GPPs, you should be playing Duke Johnson. We'll talk about it next. We're not going to talk about it next at all. It's another fake radio tease. I'm now addicted to this fake radio tease because it's so funny. It's so fun to do. Just annoy the audience. But no, you can go to playerprofiler.com, click on articles at the top, and you'll see that the DraftKings cheat code for week six. So that's going up later today. Look for that. Tyler Eifert is featured in that article because he's so good. Oh, he's so good. He's that next guy, that tight end that can run the seam or can jump up in the back of the end zone on the fade route. He can run all of those, those Gronkian tight end routes that you love to see. Bengals-Seahawks game we saw in Jeremy Hill, the reason why you can't play grinder running backs in committees against stout defenses. 
It's suicide. You can only play the pass catching back against stout defenses. That's a rule. On the season, Giovanni Bernard has 473 total yards. Jeremy Hill, 190 total yards. Yet, Jeremy Hill was the second round pick and Gio Bernard was the fourth and fifth round pick. Didn't make sense. Didn't make sense at the time. Doesn't make sense now. Has never made sense. The Jeremy Hill, Gio Bernard, ADP dichotomy never made sense because Jeremy Hill is and has always been the prototypical committee grinder, touchdown dependent, matchup driven flex option running back that you cannot play against stout run defenses. You can't play Jeremy Hill against Baltimore. Sure, you can if you want 2.9 fantasy points, 9 carries, 29 yards, 2.9 fantasy points. If you're looking for that, if that's your goal for your roster, then yes, by all means, start Jeremy Hill against Baltimore. But I'll give away the reason I like Duke Johnson this week is because I like Duke Johnson and players like Duke Johnson, the pass-catching backs, against the stout defenses. Against Denver specifically... They're stingy in all areas, in all phases, on the outside and the inside. Only in the intermediate zone is Denver not elite. Their corners are elite, so they take away your wide receivers. Their defensive tackles are stout, so they don't allow you to run between the tackles. Their defensive ends and their outside linebackers are fast, so you can't run outside. You can't do anything against Denver except one thing. They allow you to throw the ball to the running back. They squeeze out all your options, and all you're left with are running back screens and running back dump-offs. That's why players like Marcel Reese can go out and roll up eight catches, 60 yards, and a touchdown and be the only fantasy contributor on their team when they go out and play Denver. Derek Carr still had a reasonable week. He wasn't great. He wasn't QB1 last week, but he wasn't awful either. The only player that really produced significant fantasy points for Oakland was Marcel Reese. That's why I like Duke Johnson this week. But you you can't talk about Seattle and Cincinnati without talking about Andy Dalton. Because Andy Dalton is elite. He is elite. He has become elite. In front of our eyes, he's become elite. I would argue he became elite in 2013 and... Because of the anecdotal sports zombie culture that we have, we were convinced that he wasn't elite because he lost a playoff game. Wah, wah, wah. Joe Flacco wins a playoff game, multiple playoff games, multiple playoff games in a row in order to win a Super Bowl. Then Joe Flacco is permanently elite forever. Andy Dalton loses a playoff game. He can never be elite. He is a punchline. He is perpetually mocked. Yet, Andy Dalton was the number six fantasy quarterback in 2013. Joe Flacco has never been a QB1 in fantasy, ever. Joe Flacco has never had a 4,000-yard season. Joe Flacco has never had a 30-touchdown season. Joe Flacco has never had a season with a 95.0 passer rating or above. Andy Dalton has had all of those things. Andy Dalton's passer rating is 115.6. Andy Dalton is elite. Joe Flacco is just a guy. And not only is Andy Dalton elite, his weapons have never been better. He now has a top three tight end in the NFL in Tyler Eifert. He has one of the most talented wide receivers in the league. His nickname is the Cheat Code, A.J. Green. He has a field stretcher in Marvin Jones. He has a possession receiver underneath in Mohamed Sanu. He has one of the best running back pass catchers in Giovanni Bernard. 
if you were going to a weapons depot, if this was one of those video games where you were one of those first-person shooter video games and you had to go to the weapons depot and you had to arm yourself with all different types of weapons to go out and win the game with Mike Tomlin beside you. You want Mike Tomlin beside you if you want to go out and win a game, by the way. I would love that. I would love to play a first-person shooter video game with Mike Tomlin as my teammate. Oh, my, that would be the best. That would be so cool. Nothing would be better than that. Playing Call of Duty with Mike Tomlin. That would be my nirvana. I, I don't even know how to play it. I'm one of those people that when I play it, I end up just jumping up and down in the corner. Just perpetually just jumping up and down, not knowing what to do. It just If you look at one person's screen, that person's just kill-shotting zombies in the forehead. And you look at my screen, my split side of the screen. All you see is like the sky. Because I don't know what I'm doing, where I'm pointing, what the buttons do. Totally incompetent. A lot like Mike McCarthy. Yeah, I play Call of Duty like Mike McCarthy coaches. I have a theory about what has happened to Andy Dalton. Because last year, Andy Dalton's passer rating was 83.5. Not good. Last year, it was thought that Andy Dalton solidified his reputation as a game manager, just a guy quarterback that can't win a playoff game, that isn't capable of elevating his team to a Super Bowl. Which is wrong. This year is passer rating 115.6. What has been the biggest change outside of the weaponry getting healthy? Because again, you go to that weapons depot with Andy Dalton, he's like, yeah, give me a Gio Bernard, check. Give me an A.J. Green, check. Give me a Tyler Eifert, check. Give me a Marvin Jones, check. Every weapon you would want, the ideal configuration of your weaponry to go out and win football games is exactly what Andy Dalton has at his disposal. Something else Andy Dalton has now. Hair gel. He has great hair. Look at the headshot difference. Look at the headshot from 2014. Dry hair, matted down. 2015, it's an updo. He looks sharp, well-groomed. He looks great this year. You look sharp, you play sharp. Andy Dalton.